This program is a production of the Reformed Forum, online at reformedforum.org. Hello and welcome to Historia Ecclesia, discussions on the history of the church and Christian thought. My name is Camden Busey, and recently I had the pleasure of sitting down with Daryl Hart, noted historian and author of several books, including Deconstructing Evangelicalism and A Secular Faith. In this segment, we discuss various Christian epistemologies and their relation to a two kingdoms view of the church and culture. Do you think then a Vantillian epistemology or Kuyperian epistemology either favors or disfavors a 2K approach? I, I think, guess would, yeah. would, would a doubleness of mind you've applied it to this age and the age to come? Right. What about a doubleness of mind applied to this king? You know, right? One kingdom or the other kingdom? Right. I mean, I, I really am in favor of a kind of doubleness of mind because I, I think that there is a real paradoxical relationship between the, between the covenant of grace and the covenant of works, between what the church does and what the state does, uh, between, um, the way that. The world works not in not in a uh, the world in an evil sense, but the world in, as part of God's creation works, and the way that grace works, um, in the sense that uh, by the standards of the covenant of grace, in a sense, what happens to Christians is unfair. Um, we we deserve death and condemnation, and yet we're forgiven. Um, and by the standards of the covenant of works, um, there is a kind of merit system in place, and so good works should get certain kinds of rewards, or, or, or works get certain kinds of rewards. And generally speaking, it seems to me that's the way day-to-day most of the world operates. Now, of course, for all sorts of bad reasons or bad motives, will people merit rewards in, in the workplace, um, merit awards for distinguished service and all things like that, but... But there is a sense of excellence. That's what Christians in, engaged in cultural endeavors strive for. Um, they may have different aesthetics, but they still strive for a kind of excellence. Uh, they don't strive for something that needs to be forgiven. Um, and yet, in the church and in, in the covenant of grace, uh, we're surrounded, it seems to me, constantly by forgiveness and our need for forgiveness. Um, that's not to say that I'm not I'm not trying to deny good works and things like that. So, to answer your question, I do think that there is a doubleness almost everywhere, and I think it's even in in Paul when he in First Corinthians one and two where he's contrasting the wisdom of the Greeks to the folly of the cross. I mean, from the Greeks' perspective, the cross really is foolish. Yeah, and Paul concedes that. Yeah, and from the perspective of the world, the Greeks really are wise. Um, and somehow, both of those, the wisdom of the Greeks is true to a certain extent, and certainly the gospel is true to an ultimate extent, and somehow those two things live in, in tension in this world. And I still think a lot of Christians would benefit from reading Aristotle um, and the wisdom of the Greeks, and yet they can't base their salvation in any way on that. They're not going to get any help 
for the world to come with that. As, as resident or, or at least present Vantillian, let, let me ask you then, is the wisdom of the Greeks really wise? Or have they borrowed or stolen portions of what truth really is? And because they're made in the image of God, they're right. Vantil would say they're borrowed, and Dave Garner pushes it, pushes the envelope by saying they've stolen capital from the Christian mm-hmm. worldview, Christian understanding. And the reason they can do that is because they are made in the image of God. Mm-hmm. How would you how would you react to that? I guess I mean I think I can I can agree with it at a certain level, um, okay. and I think that that insight is true. But I'd also also want to add quickly that I and I think I think sometimes Christian uh, seminary students and not not talking about you, candidate but well, necessarily, but but no I, seminary <laughs> stu- students whom I've been around can sound awfully disrespectful. To the ancients, mm. because you know you can throw around oh well it's just borrowed capital or or even it's just common grace as if not in any way recognizing the accomplishments and the wisdom wherever it comes from. Ultimately, yeah. I would still say it comes from God. Yeah. And if the Greeks don't acknowledge that it comes from God, even though oftentimes they did acknowledge that it came from God, some sort of God. Yeah. Um, I just I think Christians need to be careful. In showing, um, in disparaging uh, the accomplishments of parts of God's good creation. So, on the one hand, I'm sympathetic to that point and wouldn't want to deny it. But on the other hand, I'm a little fearful of how that makes us sound. Mm -hmm. It makes us sound ungrateful, maybe even makes us sound ungrateful to God. Because I think God has given... He has provided. He's provided Christians with the insights of... The pagans, in yeah. some ways. I mean, yeah. and I think... And as you've been apt to say, just in advances in science and medicine, we're, we're very thankful to God and His providence in all those things, even though most of those advancements have not been from believers. Right. You know? Right. But um, there might be a slight disconnect if we, if we try to drive down into this disagreement between um, a principial argument or those who are trying to argue or look at this issue from a matter of systemic standpoint versus those who are looking at it in terms of a practical arena. So yeah, I'm not at all for disparaging uh, the insights mm-hmm. in the common sphere. But at the same time if I'm looking at that same those same circumstances from from a system or from a uh, a foundational or from a, a a philosophical standpoint, and you've already agreed, we'd have to we'd have to say that those that those insights do come from God. That there is a borrowed capital. So I mean, right? If if we're talking, if we're trying to do a public debate, or if we're trying to speak with unbelievers, or even in our apologetic practically, it's never good to disparage. And say, well, you just got all that from common grace. That's not respectful. But from a from a philosophical or from a very foundational right. level or fundamental level, that's true. Right. I think. Right. No, and I and I think that there are there are honest pagans who would admit that, especially pag- pagans who know their philosophy. Um, that, and interestingly, it's it's some of the idealist 
um, academics to whom I know who philosophically inclined who are willing to see that without God, I mean, it's almost sort of the ontological argument. Um, well, I, I do think standard. idealists, I'm convinced that idealists have come closest to the truth with what they're working with. I mean, an unbelieving idealist. Right. I, and, and I think that's borne out in, in uh, early 20th century British absolute idealism. Huh. You end up, the epitome of complete atheistic idealism is, uh, is a man named Bernard Bosanquieu. And he, he, uh, he hypothesized a system that is controlled by an impersonal absolute. But then we get into guys like uh, A.C. Knudsen and Borden Parker Bone or Bound and uh, Gordon Clark um, and others that are that have a personal idealism, uh, personal absolute idealism, which is very close to Christian truth. And in fact, Newton was a Methodist, although a very odd one. And then Clark, obviously a Presbyterian. With, though I have questions of his orthodoxy in terms of his Trinitarian theology. But um, my point being, those guys are working consciously in the idealistic sphere. Yeah, having just taught, uh, I know very poorly, <laughs> but just taught Descartes' meditations on first philosophy, um, I mean, that kind of idealism really scares me because he... He, he goes so far to distinguish mind and body that that the mind really is independent of of the body and yeah that's and and I'm I'm enough of an Aristotelian that I want to hold on to um, the created the created stuff in matter as as good and and I I haven't spend any time on the mind-body problem but um, and I don't plan to spend any more, many, many more time on it unless I teach Descartes again um, but you know I mean I think is it possible to think without a brain if that's where cognitive processes go on now granted when it's normal it's, I think we would we'd probably have to say it's possible because of the intermediate state right but that's not right. It's not normal. It's not typical. It's not, it's not Christian. It's not good. It, yeah, it's not good. It's not the normal mode. It's right. a result of the fall. And that's one of the things I tried to explain yeah. to students about the intermediate state. Um, and and but and for what it's worth, I mean, I thought that Descartes did a bit of a bait and switch in there, where he's trying to prove the immortality of the soul, but for him, the soul is really the mind. And I and I don't really know how to sort out the differences between the soul and the mind, um, but. It does seem to me that the soul is is something different in scripture than mind. I mean, we love God with all our soul, strength, and want, mind. Yeah, but we wouldn't want to be tripartite. That's the danger. I mean, we're di- we're dichotomous. Right, but there are different faculties. I think to our immateriality. I think that's how probably how I would call it. We can make we can make some distinctions, not ontological distinctions. But we can make, uh, I think, certain s- distinctions in terms of the functions and the, the, s- the spheres or areas of our immaterial being. Right, and I think you think our will, our right, you know, yeah. So I don't, I don't, I don't want to think soul. of soul as synonymous with mind. I no, wouldn't want to think of soul as synonymous with will. No, 
I mean, so but they're not. But I wouldn't want to say that. Right, I wouldn't want to say they're independent of Soul. Either. <laughs> so, but but I just think that I mean, right. Descartes kind of got on this roll, and he he just went strictly with mind and sort of. I mean, granted, he tries to deal with will somewhat, but. Um, I mean, the history. You know, you end up getting into some goofy mysticism or spirituality. With have you ever heard of this guy? Maybe. 40 years ago named Watchman Nee. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, that's the kind of stuff that can come out of a trichotomous view where you end up with this anti-intellectual Christianity mm-hmm. if, or Pentecostalism where God can speak directly to your soul independent of your mind, which is extremely dangerous. I mean, but, but the furthest thing from Presbyterianism right. is you can get. But I mean, it's... <clears throat> having taught somewhat about Quakerism, too, <clears throat> since I'm teaching on religion in Philadelphia. And I did need to do something with the Friends, so... I mean, Quakers yeah. Quakers were asserting this stuff back in the 17th century, it seems to me. I mean, you know, that's funny. this, this notion of inner light... Though, too, right? Well, it came late. I okay. think it, it came when they <clears throat> became um, middle class and... The main line. I mean, you know, so Bryn Mawr and Haverford are out there on the main line, I think, when they suburbanized. Okay. Huh. Well, that's fascinating. Yeah, I I, I enjoy speaking about these things. But it's... The idealism angle on it's always been interesting to me. I've written a couple of papers on that, and that's that's the kind of philosophy I enjoy talking about. For me, it's the hardest thing to understand. I don't don't, don't get it. And my instincts are much more... Toward a uh, you know realism and idealism were synonymous, you know, or sort of realism was idealism uh-huh. before yeah. the Reformation. So you know, but post Kant, I'm a much more of a realist in the Scottish school or the Aristotelian. Yeah, no, and I'm wondering. I'm what I actually was going to bring that up in your some of your concerns about epistemological self consciousness. The fact that not every person is epistemologically self-conscious in that sense. Those are kind of the same concerns in, in uh, Plantinga's warrant. Hmm. Where he he isn't trying... Plantinga hmm. does some really great things if you understand what he's doing. Mm-hmm. But we the Vantillians get so critical of him because you we all of a sudden assume he's trying to build some entire epistemological framework or system. Mm-hmm. That's not what planning is doing. He's trying to give a defense for how we, how can we have justification for believing something we believe. Now, uh, he he consciously appeals to uh, Scottish common sense realism, right? Thomas Reed, and says, "Well, look, I mean, I have good reason for believing that wall is there and that it's white. Do I go through this huge discursive?" You know, logical process to come up with that belief. No. But am I warranted for believing that? Well, yeah. Why? For common sense reasons. Hmm. But the Vantillian will come around and say, oh, 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 common sense falls apart. You know, it, it can't, it can't explain. Right. And it can't in a, in a, in a complete philosophical right. no, like, analysis. But that's not what Plato is trying to do. So I think maybe. That might be some of the same concern with, with right. the idea of epistemological well, self-consciousness. And I haven't read it. I'm not about to. Well, I haven't read it either. I've, but, hey, but I a mean, little book in here, that's where you learn about that stuff. What I was going to say, I haven't read Walderstorff. I mean, um, Walderstorff. But, you know, uh-huh. Walderstorff eventually does a big book on 
uh-huh. on Reed. So, I mean, yeah. those guys may have been in an idealist philosophical tradition of some kind, but they both... Like some of the insights Yeah, they kind of... Guys. Well, what, what do you... What, um, that caused a lot of problems, didn't it, in early American Presbyterianism, the Scottish common sense realism? And I don't think it did, Okay, frankly, but... Um, Francis Hutchison's another one, isn't he? Yeah, I mean, there are, there are real tensions um, between the, their, the, the Scottish philosopher's uh, understanding of human nature and the Christian understanding, but just as there are real tensions in uh, the American founding understanding of, um, of virtue being necessary for a stable republic... And of course, well, you know, no Christian, no no person is virtuous aside from a Christian, and even Christians are, you know, are virtuous only because of grace or the Spirit mm-hmm. or whatever. Um, and you can't set up a state on that basis. It seems to me you just can't. It, that you have to, in some way, appeal to the covenant of works and say, no, be virtuous. You're capable of a certain kind of civic virtue anyway, and we're going to reward. Virtue, and we're going to punish yeah. vice, and we're going to have checks and balances to right. Kind of so, I mean, trying to trying to be to avoid any kind of doubleness, dualism maybe too loaded a word, but to try to avoid any kind of doubleness with, say, the way that the Princetonians tried to hold on to common sense realism and reformed orthodoxy. Um, it seems to me you could set yourself up for. Well, I don't know what a Vantillian Republic would look like, for instance. <laughs> I, mean, I don't. I, I don't think I want one. I mean, I'm a Vantillian, but I have I have heavy sympathies towards the 2K approach. I'm highly speculative of of the efficacy of appealing to natural law because of my convictions about the uh, noetic effects of sin. Mm-hmm. But same with Jeff Waddington and we I think we're on board with each other on this but it's it's like well we like the TK a lot but when it comes down to it when we get down to the brass tacks it's it's like well I go into the public sphere and I can appeal to natural law I think that's a thing that I'm warranted in doing because all men are created in the image of God and have the law written on their hearts I can legitimately appeal to it but do I have any hope it's actually going to convert or convince somebody no I mean, people are people are going to reject the things that are convenient for them to reject. But I mean, it will. It can appeal in a in a proximate sense. Yeah. I mean, or persuade in a proximate sense. Yeah. So you could conceivably change someone's mind. Yes. On abortion. Yes. No, and it's we're warranted in doing that. It's actually a sound and valid argument to do so. Right, but to, to you know, that's just because if they get abortion right, they still have to. Believe and repent. You know, I mean, you know. Oh yeah, I'm talking. Yeah, no, I'm talking no, and I, I, yeah, I know you. Yeah. But so I mean, I think there. It's still possible to persuade people um, to change their minds in in the in the matters that we share in common. Yes. Yes. So, otherwise, we would be. You really. <laughs> we'd be in trouble. Really yeah. No. I, <clears> and I, 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 but I also, I mean, I also. Believe that people just have incredible. I mean, Christians as well, um, and maybe this was where I'm trying to be more self-conscious, and 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 would tip my hat more to to Bill about some kind of maybe not 
epistemological but maybe ethical self-consciousness. Mm-hmm. But, um, I mean, re, uh, watching The Wire, um, I'm, a, I mean, I'm a fan of all kinds of movies. And been told it's the best show on television. But even the Coen Brothers stuff, yeah. they really explore how people have mixed motives. And oh, yeah. all the different angles. Oh, yeah. Miller's Crossing is all about you do this one thing and it gives somebody an angle over here that you didn't see coming. I mean, there's yeah, always... Yeah, Totoro's character is like it, perfect. Right. Right. It's like this, where everyone's engaged in this chess match. And if, yeah. you know, people who are really trying to take advantage of it can are maybe worse than others. But what The Wire shows is that even people on the right side of the law are mm-hmm. doing the same thing that the drug yeah. dealers are doing on the yeah. other side of the law. Yeah. Um, and so people have all sorts of mixed motives all the time, even for doing good things. Yeah. And, you know, and ideally Christians would not be that duplicitous, um, even though I think oftentimes we do have mixed motives in the sense of if I'm a parent, I need to provide for my kid, and I'm not going to take the shirt off my kid's back to give it to someone else who needs a shirt. Perhaps if my kid doesn't have a shirt, yeah. I mean, Paul's clear about providing for our own first. Oh yeah. So, <clears throat> you know, but even Revelation though six, I mean, you take care of the household of God right. first. Though we're supposed to do good to all men, but there is an order of priority. Right. So yeah. we have to, we have to balance all of these claims upon us mm-hmm. and juggle them, and we can't always be following Christ, um, Sermon on the Mount, or something. But. And I'm not sure that's what it, you know. I'm not sure the sermon on the mat was given to uh, f- for parents to um, rule in their homes. I think you know you, you don't turn there for family advice. You turn to Ephesians five or something. You know. Yeah. Interesting. Thank you for listening to this discussion with Daryl Hart. You can visit us online at reformedforum.org. There you can contact us through the website, or you can email us at mail at reformedforum.org or send us a voicemail at 440-97-FORUM. Thank you so much for listening, and we hope you join us again next time on Historia Ecclesia.